0: If you've served, I'd like you to to stand right now and stay standing for just a moment. We actually have a gift uh, that we'll be handing you. But if you'd stand right now, veterans, if, if you've served, please stand so we can show you our appreciation. Very good, very polite. But now I want us to really show our appreciation, all right? Thank you. Boy, I appreciate our veterans, as only maybe a Navy brat could. Um, I I, I know many of you are in the same boat I am, but uh, I grew up on Navy bases. And my dad uh, wanted to to serve during World War II. He was 16, wanted to go in. They wouldn't take him. He turned 17 on a Sunday. He was at the recruiting office on Monday. His parents signed for him, and he joined uh, when he was 17 years old. Served through three wars. Yeah, raise your hand up. If we didn't get to give you your gift, if you're a veteran and you didn't receive something from it, just hold your hand up while I tell my little story, and we'll get that to you. Just put your hand up. We, we'd like to identify you uh, just to give you something. Put something in your hand as a thanks for being here. But as I said, my dad served through three wars. He actually, I was born the day he made chief, and uh, we appreciate our vets. We really, we thank you for being here. Thank you for the service uh, that you've given our country, we are very aware that what we do here at Grace, what what we do here every Sunday, that we're only able to do that because we have freedom. And we have freedom because of the men and women who serve our country and protect our country. So thank you. Last few Sundays, we've been talking about the different encounters that Jesus had with people, and we've been noticing that every time Jesus encountered somebody, they always came away shocked, stunned, surprised, even amazed at what Jesus did and what he had to say. Today, we're looking at another encounter somebody had with Jesus, and this time, this is the only time. In scripture, where Jesus comes away amazed. Jesus encounters somebody, something happens, and then Jesus is amazed by what happened. And so we might ask, well, who does Jesus, the Son of God, encounter during his public ministry, three years on earth, walking our planet? Who does he encounter that he's amazed by? Who, who would that be? A great religious leader? Uh, some sort of priest? in judaism a rabbi no a soldier specifically a soldier in the roman army a centurion which is kind of surprising i mean roman centurion wouldn't have the resume maybe that we would expect for somebody who amazes jesus he's a guy that would have been raised first of all he's a gentile and that's just a. Uh, a term that Jewish people use for all non-Jewish people. We see it in, in the Bible a lot. Gentile just means non-Jewish. He's a Gentile. No doubt raised as a pagan, maybe believing in many gods or, or not really given a rip. He somehow has distinguished himself in the Roman army. A centurion, like century means a hundred. A centurion was over a hundred Roman soldiers. He's Distinguished himself in a brutal army. He's now stationed in a region of Galilee, specifically Capernaum. And he's there, what? He's the occupying force in Palestine. He's there because the emperor has him there to keep the peace because they are occupying Israel. And this is the guy who Jesus says amazed him. We're going to read his story in Matthew chapter 8 and invite you to to grab a Bible on the back of the chair rack in front of you. If you don't have one, or I know a lot of you have it on your phones and iPads and stuff like that, Matthew chapter 8. Same story is also recorded in Luke 7, but Matthew 8 is our text, and I'm going to begin reading in chapter 8, verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, And I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go. It shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. So we have this centurion. And, and what, I want to note, what I want us to notice as we go through this, this is really a story about faith. And I think a lot of times faith is misunderstood. So I want to drill down on that a little bit. And and I want us to see three actions that express faith in Jesus. And the first one is just the way this centurion came to Jesus. The first action is that we humbly admit our need. That we humbly admit our need. Uh, it's, It's kind of interesting because Luke... Matthew's an eyewitness. Luke also records this event, both from the first century, writing this down. And then Luke mentions something that Matthew doesn't mention. Luke mentions that here in Capernaum, where the centurion lives, that the religious leaders of the area they come and lobby Jesus on behalf of the centurion, which is super unusual, right? He's the enemy, he's the occupying force. But you have religious leaders coming to Jesus saying, hey, this guy, this guy's a good guy. He's, and and then they mention specifically, he contributed to the building of our synagogue. So here you have this pagan centurion who has given the Jewish people money so they can build their synagogue in order to worship God. So you have all this kind of interesting unusual situation going on here and so they are these leaders as they lobby Jesus they're basically saying hey Jesus you know this I know this guy's a Roman I know he's a centurion I know he's the occupying force I know he's a gentile but listen to him he's a good guy they say specifically they say he is worthy he's worthy so whatever he asks you do it for him Jesus this guy he's worthy which is very interesting because in our account and Luke, we realize that's not what the centurion said, right? The centurion, when, when he is making this request of Jesus, he, and Jesus says, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll come and take care of that for you. And, and, and the centurion says what? I am not worthy. He says, I'm not, wor- I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And we see a completely different reaction. He humbly realized that he had a need. And he was humbled to realize he needed outside help. He could not fix this on his own. That's interesting because we don't know exactly what the centurion knew about Jesus. Or what he had seen. We know they didn't look like they've ever met before. No doubt he's heard about Jesus or he wouldn't even come to Jesus for help. Maybe he's even heard of some, some of Jesus' teaching. He obviously believes that Jesus ha- has done a miracle or s- because that's what he's asking for. And so he approaches Jesus, he humbly admits his needs, and he comes to Jesus just exactly who he should come to. And he says, I'm not worthy. This right here... I believe, is the greatest misunderstanding of Christianity in our culture today. I I was meeting this last week with a a newer friend of mine who's not a believer. He he would say he's not a believer. And we were talking, and this guy's he's he's kind of a younger guy, a community leader, very highly respected in, in his community. Everybody likes him, good husband, good dad just a great guy, and as we're talking, and he was telling me, he lives a very moral life, and he was telling me, well, I I just, I always, I'm always just wanting to do the right thing because it's right, and in that, I'm going to mess up the quote, but basically what he said was, I just always want to do the right thing, just like Christians always want to do the right thing in order to go to heaven, I just, I just, I'm the same way, I just want to do the right thing, And I stopped and said, no. No true Christian does the right thing in order to go to heaven. Do do we understand that? If you're truly a believer... No true Christian would say, well, I just do the right thing because I want to go to heaven. Because the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is teaching us that we do not do the right thing enough to merit anything from God. That we need outside help. That's what the Old Testament is telling us. That's what the commandments tell us. It's what the law tells us. That's what the sacrificial system tells us. All of that pointing to the coming of Jesus because we need outside help because we cannot do the right thing. It's the same thing when you hear people say, well, Christians are hypocrites. Anytime you hear somebody saying Christians are hypocrites they also don't understand what Christianity is all about. Because Christianity, Christians are the, are the one group of people, not saying they're the only group of people, but they're one group of people who are saying, we aren't better than anybody else. We are jacked up people that deserve separation from God that because we're bad. We don't think we're better than anybody else. We're admitting that we're not better than anybody else. So... Again, I'm not saying blast these people, but when people just say Christian, that should just be your clue, oh, they don't really understand what it is to be a Christian. If they're saying, ah, Christians are hip- hypocrites. They, they just, it's not their fault, they just don't get it. It's our job to help them understand. Wow, that, that's, that's not what Christianity is. So he comes, he humbly realizes that he has a need and he needs help, and that leads us to the next thing is to express faith in Jesus, we we humbly met our need. But next, we we come to the one who can help us. Or we, we ask Jesus, who's the only one that can help us in many situations. And that's exactly what the centurion does. He comes to Jesus for help. And we realize from the text that he gets Jesus because like... And what he's saying, what the centurion says, is he's telling us he understands this because like any good soldier, he understands authority. And what's really interesting here and what the centurion says, he doesn't say, hey, I'm not worthy to come under my hat. Just say the word because, hey, I'm over a bunch of people, too, and they do whatever I say. That's not exactly how he put it. Did you catch it? He says, I'm also under Authority is what the centurion said. Verse 9. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. You see, under authority, he realizes he's been given authority. And this man that totally gets authority like anybody in the military should get. He totally understands that, and he recognizes in Jesus that Jesus has an authority from above or an authority from God. And he gets that, that that's where his authority comes from. Because for the centurion, he realizes that he's an authority in this area of Palestine, but his authority comes from who? Caesar. He represents Caesar in this area And he only has people under him because he's representing somebody that he's under, Caesar, the emperor of the realm. And so he totally understands that. And so we don't know exactly what he knew about Jesus. Like I say, he had heard of him. He maybe knew a little bit about his ministry. But probably, obviously, he's heard about Jesus' miracles. That's why he comes and asks. Now, miracles are a funny thing. Actually, all through the Bible, there's only a few times, a few uh, generations where miracles were actually happening. Miracles are a display. We, a lot of times people see them as just kind of a raw display of power, but that's never the way miracles were done in the Bible and I want to flesh that out you see I think a lot of times people don't believe like Thomas Jefferson you know he couldn't wrap his mind around he believed in the Bible except for I don't believe all the miracle stuff I think all that's legend now we could know something Thomas Jefferson couldn't know and that is that they can't be legend because they were recorded for us too early we know we have exactly what was written in the first century, so it wasn't like the Bible changed over time. We can now prove that through archaeology because we've dug up so much stuff about the Bible from the first and second century. So this didn't, it's not a legend that developed over time. These are, are miracles, but here's the thing. We put miracles kind of in the category of uh, legendary people in the past like Merlin or superheroes, fictional superheroes, In the present, fictional people from the past, Merlin, superheroes in the present, like Superman, right? And if we wanted, if we, somebody told us he was Superman, we would say, well, prove it. And he would say, how? And we would say something like, well, see that mountain in the distance? Blow the top off of that mountain. Then he would use his x-ray vision, and and we would go, whoa, Superman. Superman. Jesus never did a raw display of power like that. It was never a display, look what I can do. Look, I can blow the top off this mountain. Every time Jesus displayed power, every time Jesus did a miracle, it was always to meet a human need, every single time. And it's almost, every time you look at it, it's fascinating to study through it. Every time he does a miracle, it's to meet some human need, and further than that, we see a miracle as sort of against the laws of nature, but really, I think if we look at miracles, it's almost like a restoration of the natural laws that should have been before the world got messed up, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but It's like Jesus' miracles are a restoration of the way things were originally intended to be. And we get the feeling that Jesus is no more happy with some of the way things are going now than we are when it comes to suffering and, and hard times. But he can do something about it. And the other thing is he's always concerned about the person that he's doing miracles for. Today... Sometimes you'll hear about some preacher guy and he's saying that he has the gift of healing and, you know, send him some money or do whatever and he can heal you and God's given him this. We don't buy that. And by the way, when it, and then it's always something you can't really see happening. So you're not really sure. That didn't look real. And then if it doesn't happen because it's something that you can see, then what does he say? You didn't have enough faith. Right? That's bogus. We don't even believe people have the gift of healing anymore like that there's some biblical reasons that we believe that you see notice in this story the person who gets healed he didn't have any faith right Who, who had the faith the guy asking for the healing for somebody else well if that's the healer guy then why isn't his faith good enough? That's what I'm saying. Jesus always does this in a way to help people. And, and when people ask him to do something, and usually it's to meet a human need, he meets the need, but it always seems that he's more concerned with the faith. Actually, he is. He wants to meet the need to alleviate the suffering or the problem. But more important than that is the faith that the person has who's asking him, because that's an even bigger deal than the immediate problem at hand. More important than physical healing is what I'm saying is that we're right with God for an eternity, rather than just being healed of something that lasts a couple of decades, maybe at best. So what's going on with our world that we would even have suffering like that? Well, Scripture tells us that God made the world and he made us. We didn't just happen randomly. It didn't just, you know, it wasn't just a bunch of mixing and chaos and an explosion and then perfect balance and order and intelligence comes from that. That is not true. You don't see that anywhere in the world. It just does not happen. Order never comes from chaos. We have a designer. We can look at our bodies. We can look at nature. We can look at the universe and know there is a designer behind all that. His name is God. He has designed the universe and he made us. And when it came to human beings, he made us with a special gift, if you will. He made us in his image. And in that image means that we could know and be aware of ourselves and God. And that he gave us this ability, this freedom, if you will, that we could love God back like no other creature could. We as human beings could know our creator and love God back. But in order for God to give us the ability to love him back, he also, by necessity, we end up with the ability to not love him back. Because love has to be voluntary. If it's not voluntary, it's not love. You can't force love. So in order for God to give us the ability to love, he also gives us the ability to not love, to rebel against him, and to not want a relationship with him. And it's that ability, that freedom, which is a good thing, that God gave us the ability to truly, freely, voluntarily love him back. That's what caused sin in our world. And because of that, the first human beings sinned, Adam and Eve, and we have sinned too. And that broke our fellowship with God. And it's our sin that introduced suffering into the world. God is not the author of suffering. We are the author of suffering. It's what our rebellion and our sin against God has brought to the world. Not only that, Scripture's telling us that God is perfectly just. And if he's perfectly just, that means Things that are wrong have to be punished. People who do wrong have to be punished. And guess what? We're all in trouble because we've all done wrong. And not only have we done wrong, we've done wrong against our Creator, against God. We violated His commands, His standard of righteousness. If you're a little foggy on that, go back and read the Ten Commandments at at a minimum and think, oh, oh, yeah, what are those commands? Honor your parents all the time. Never lust, never steal, never covet, never hate. Keep God first every minute of every day for your entire life. Never take his name in vain. It doesn't take long that, we, that if we're thinking we're sinless, that gets blown up, right? How many of you, how many of you here say, I'm a sinner, that's what I'm talking about. It doesn't take long. Maybe we're not spotting people who didn't raise your hand, but maybe you're not convinced, but I'm telling you, it does not take long to figure that out. And if God's just, well, then that needs to be punished. We're in trouble because our sin is against God, our creator, who's perfectly righteous and hasn't done anything wrong. This, the consequences are huge, and what they are is a separation from God for an eternity Jesus mentions that in this passage, we'll get to it in a bit, but that's what's at stake. So here we are, we've rebelled against our creator, we deserve separation from him forever, but God still loves us. God loves you personally, he knows everything about you, he knows your every thought, he knows your every bad motive, he knows every dark thing in your heart, and everything you've done, and God still loves you, and he loves you so much that he allowed his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth to live a perfect life and for three years teach us the right way, but mainly what he came to do was that Jesus Christ came to voluntarily allow himself to be tortured to death in payment of our individual sin. And the way we get that to count for us is by putting our faith, and that's what we're talking about, our faith in Jesus. And so when we come to him, when we humbly admit our need, and then we realize when it comes to our salvation or us being okay with God, there's only one We need outside help, and there's only one person that can help us, and that's Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. I think vets understand that probably better than most of us. And that's what Jesus has done for each one of us. So humbly admit need, ask the one who can help. And then my third point here is that we need to respond with faith. And we do that by believing and trusting in Jesus. That's how the centurion's faith showed up it's weird talking about faith sometimes because our world has messed that term up have you ever heard somebody say something like you hear this on tv and stuff it's just nuts you hear people saying well it doesn't matter what you believe or what you put your faith in just so you have faith that's stupid So I'm going to put my faith in this table, not that it can hold up my Bible. I'm going to put my faith in this table that it could do something else for me. That's dumb. It's not the, the faith is not the most important thing. The object of our faith is the most important thing. That's what's important. That's our starting point. That we have someone to have faith in. Now, I got to tell you, the other thing is, yeah, and some of you are sitting here, yeah, yeah people are, they're messed up that way. And, and and maybe you're kind of like a skeptic. And I get that. I'm, I'm kind of skeptic, too, about things. So I can relate to you. And then some people say, well, you know, I, I don't do the faith stuff. I don't have faith because I believe No one could really know that they know God. No one can know for sure God exists. No one can know for sure that that God can do anything for us. So nobody can really know. When when you hear people say that, that is a statement of faith. Because we you just push back. How do you know nobody can know? How do you know nobody could know God? How are you sure about that? How do you prove that? can't prove that. So just point out that if that's your belief, that's fair. But just know that's a faith belief. Because you are believing in a statement that is an article of faith because it cannot be proven that no one can know God. Who says No one can know God. You're a non-believer with faith, but it's still faith. It's not doing you any good because the object of your faith is totally wrong. But you have faith. No, No matter who you are today, no matter where you're at, anybody in the world, I believe, they have faith in something. The question is, what is it? because we all have faith, every single one of us, and we can't get around that. But here's the issue. Sooner or later, we have to confront the big questions in life. Where'd I come from? Where'd I come from? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Is there a God? We don't like those big questions. Because they're they're hard. And for some people, they're scary. And they're uncomfortable to, to ask sometimes. And so we convince ourselves that we're too busy to really deal with those big questions in life. So we just don't think about it. And, and if that's true, here's what happens. Sometimes what, what forces somebody to think about it is that, they realize that they're in a crisis. When you're in a crisis, all of a sudden you start thinking about the big questions in life because everything else in your life has kind of been stripped away and now you're in crisis mode. Your life has come crashing down and you're left with these big questions to answer that you're always too busy for before. That's what happened with the centurion. He could have... He had obviously heard about Jesus. He could have at any time probably gone and found out more about Jesus. But he doesn't do that. that that's not what causes him to come to Christ. What does? He's in crisis mode. He has a servant who looks, seems to be dying. And he can't do anything about it. So he comes and he asks, and he, and he asks the person that he knows can help. The vague emptiness that we feel sometimes when times are good turns into something unignorable when times are hard. And we realize we need answers to the biggest questions in life. So why? Why? Why humbly admit our need? Why come to the one who could help Jesus? Why respond with belief and trust? Well, the why is answered this way. Because what we put our, what or who we put our faith in has eternal consequences. Has eternal consequences. That's what Christ is referring to here When he turns from the centurion, he he goes, wow. And he addresses the crowd. After the centurion responds with surprising faith, and Jesus is amazed, Jesus shocks the crowd with this next statement, starting in verse 10. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Right there, he's saying, I've not found this level of faith in any of the Jewish people. This Gentile shows me this. Verse 11. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the first ancestors of all the Jewish people. Abraham is where the Jewish people came from. So they are the forefathers. They are the patriarchs. And so they're with God in heaven. And and then Jesus says, people from the east and west. When Jesus says this, he's referring to people away that aren't from Palestine. They're not from Israel. He's talking about Gentiles. He's basically saying, hey, in in time future, in heaven, someday we'll see Gentiles feasting in heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there'll be Jewish people, the sons of the kingdom. They won't be there. What's, what's he saying? He's saying you have to have faith. The Jewish leaders who are lobbying for the centurion, they we don't know if they had faith. We're assuming they probably did not have faith. And... And Jesus is just pointing out, you know what? I've come for all people, all races, all nations, all people. And in the future, there will be Gentiles that you guys think are far from God and they will be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they put their faith in me. And there'll be sons of the kingdom, meaning Jewish people who did not put their faith in me, who will be cast into outer darkness. And then he describes that in verse, verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here Jesus Jesus is vividly portraying the anguish of being separated from God for an eternity. And after Jesus, and I gotta tell you, when when he said those what I just covered in those three verses, the crowd is stunned. They're they're I can tell you right now, they'll just be like, what? That's turning their world upside down. They're they're the Jewish people. They're God's chosen. They're the ones that God picked out through Abraham to represent God to the rest of the world. What, we're going to be left out? Some of us won't be there? Shocking. And then after the crowd is stunned by Jesus' words, he turns back. In verse 13, Jesus said to the centurion, Go, and it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. You see, faith is simply coming to God humbly because you have a need. You have a need to be reconciled to God. You have a need to be forgiven of your wrongs. You have a need to be forgiven of your sins against God. The penalty for which is separation from him forever. And you and me. We all, we all need outside help. To reconcile us back to God. And that's exactly why Jesus came. And Jesus gave his life. For us. So that through faith. And what. Believing who Jesus is. The son of God. And trusting that what he did was enough. That's faith. And we could be reconciled with God forever, but we don't deserve it. We never deserve it. If you don't know where you stand with God, if you're a little if you're a little unsure about your faith, I'd like you to think about that. while Jay sings uh, this next song. The song's called "Hero." It's kind of interesting to me because I think veterans and people that hang around with veterans a lot. They have a little different interpretation of the word hero. The word hero in our culture, it's pretty broad. It, it can mean anything. Somebody goes through a hard time, they make it through their hero. I think veterans have a more narrow, most veterans have a more narrow definition of hero, and it's this. That somebody would willingly risk their life for somebody else. And then sometimes as a result of that, they lose their life. That's a hero. And... Jesus Christ is our ultimate example of that, Jay. He
1: walked the dirty streets, famous for nothing said come follow me and they came the face like all the rest something was different the son of god would A single word would calm the storm His touch could heal the sick, but he was called a hypocrite he laid behind the stone, his death was surely morn No! So
0: that song just to kind of give you time to think through and consider your relationship with God. If you're not sure you've ever expressed your faith in Jesus and by that that you believe who he is and you trust in what he did on the cross. I want to give you an opportunity. God knows your every your every every flaw. Every dark thought as I mentioned and he hung on the cross for over three hours at any time he could have come down feeling pain just like we feel pain and he allowed himself to be tortured to death until he bled out and he did it for you personally and if you're ready to trust him with your life you're trusting in something And I want to lead you in a prayer. You can follow, make this your prayer. God knows your every thought. You don't even have to say it out loud. But if you're sincere and you make this prayer your prayer, God promises you'll be reconciled to him forever, and nobody can ever change that. Let's bow our heads. And again, if you're not sure where you stand and you're ready to trust Christ, you can express it to him like this. Father God, in heaven, I understand. Lord, I I admit that I've done wrong things and ultimately I've sinned against you. And Father, I also realize, like everyone else, that the punishment for my sin, because it's against you, is eternal separation from you. But God, I also know that you love me anyway. You love me more than I ever dreamed. That even in my sin, You made a way. You'd allow your one and only son to die on the cross for my sins. And God, I'm asking you for forgiveness based on what Christ has done for me, believing he was your son and trusting that what he did on the cross was enough to pay for my sins, all of them. And God, I'm asking you to come into my life and help me to live your way, help me to follow you Help me to do right, not because it earns heaven, but do right because I'm grateful for what you've done for me. And you've told us how how we should live. God, help me to follow you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our heads are bowed and not trying to manipulate anyone or, or do anything to embarrass you, but our heads are bowed and I'm looking around. And if you prayed that prayer, as far as you know, you don't know that you've ever just given... Your life to Christ. You've ever just placed your trust in Jesus alone, but you did today. You prayed that prayer sincerely in your own heart. I'd like you to indicate that. And, and how I want you to do that is while everyone's head's about, that you, you just raise your hand and look up here and let me see, you and then put your hand back down. I'm not going to call you down or have you do anything else. Just looking for a hand, just so that we can pray for you. I see you right back there. See both of you. See you. See you. Thanks. Thank you. Just put it up. Let, let me kind of make eye contact with you and put it, I see you over there. Let's put it right back down. I've been kind of looking over on this side. How about this other side, the right side of the auditorium? If you're saying that's true of me. See, way back there. I see you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, I see you. Thank you. Let's pop it up, and put it right back down. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Right down here, thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for these who, uh, just like many of us have done, most of us here, we've admitted our sin, we've turned to you, asking for forgiveness, knowing we needed outside help, and there's no other way, and we could never deserve it. And God, I I pray that you'd help them to get started right, or that they would feel your presence, Lord, that you'd help all of us who are believers to to do the right thing, not because it earns us anything, it doesn't. Just in gratitude, because you're our king. Lord, help us to follow you. And Father, for those who prayed the prayer but didn't have the guts to raise their hand, Lord, we know they're in. And Father, for those who couldn't raise their hand because they're just not quite there, that you continue to draw them to yourself. And we pray that Grace Community Church would be a part of that. Lord, thank you in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Really appreciate you guys being here for Veterans Day. Hope you come back next